Hey, you are listening to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. And on today's episode, I have on Rebecca Weaver. Rebecca has a deep background in HR. We met at an agency that we were both working at, where she was the head of people and culture. And while there, she founded HR Uprise. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, Lene. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to dig into, I think, first off, what HR means and what that is. Yeah. Um, and then kind of go from there. And I think naturally from there, uh, we will get to what HR Uprise is okay. and how that's going. Yep, that sounds good. <laughs> so you have worked in HR for many years. Yes. And you have worked at a variety of company types in different states, which mm-hmm. I appreciate because I think, you know, if you stay in one company type, you end up seeing a lot of the same thing over and over. Yep. Um, what, what does exactly an HR department do? So typically HR, human resources, uh, it, this is an interesting question actually because it's something that has really evolved over the past few years. So yes, I have worked in HR for almost 20 years now, so I will give a little hint about how old I am. <laughs> she started when she was 12. <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so I started with pretty big companies. I worked for Target uh, for about 11 years, Home Depot for another Three after that, so a couple of really big retailers mm-hmm. um, and bouncing around the country. And for me, it's interesting because I never intended to go into HR. So this question of like, what is it, um, was a really interesting one. I started in internal communications and thought that was going to be my path. And funny enough, I talk to a lot of HR people now and they will say the same thing. Mm. Um, it's pretty rare to find somebody who says, oh, I went to school and studied HR and this right. was the career I wanted. But what was really interesting to me as I kind of found, fell my, <laughs> fell into this, this career path, what was really interesting to me, especially with the company I was working with at the time, Target, I saw the role that they played, the role that this team played in the overall strategic function of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was focused on such a wide variety of things. It was, you know, of course there's the payroll and benefits portion and like that's important, especially if that's not working well, like that's pretty well table stakes to make Mm -hmm. sure that that stuff's working well. Um, But then it was really looking at the people function, the strategy around the team, um, and especially in a large organization like that, so much of your time is focused on the talent management strategy, meaning, you know, who do we have on our team who's ready to get to the next level? Um, And what does that look like at every level within the organization? And the part that I loved the most was around the talent development. So it's, you know, hey, Lene, if you're ready to go to the next level, what are the things we need to help you work on Mm -hmm. to really get you prepared so that you'll be successful when you get to the next level, whatever that looks like for you? Mm -hmm. And then on and on and on, Um, you know, and there's certainly, if you're looking at it big picture, Um, There's a huge need for an organization to know, you know, who's our next level of leadership? How are we going to continue to grow our organization um, over the course of time, especially especially when you're um, a high growth organization like Target was at the time? Yeah. And and I imagine, too, and a lot of that has to do with the high cost of turnover, because if I join an organization and then I don't see room for me to ever do something new or be challenged or learn or grow or get promoted, that is really, that's a tough sell. Yeah. And I think, especially since, you, since you've been doing this for a while, you've seen a lot of jobs come into organizations that didn't exist previously. Yep. 
And so that must be really interesting too, because I we met when I was on like a social team, well, marketing team, but specific to social media. Yep. And when that's a new role, yeah, that for a lot of organizations still remains a question mark of where do you go from there. And of yep. course, at an at an advertising agency, it also depends on what clients you're bringing on, and there is that other element of you can only as an HR person do so much in terms of organization growth and building teams and talent development as much as like the work that comes in that's available because you can't promote someone to do something at an agency if there's no clients that need that function. Yeah. Yeah. It is just so complicated. It's yeah. so complex. Yeah. It's the, what are the needs of the client? Cause ultimately, you know, that's who is paying the bills. That's where mm-hmm. the revenue is coming from. Um, what are the roles that we need um, on scale? What are the roles that we need to make sure that that work is done? And then, then once we figure that out, it's what are the skills that we need people to be able to come in with? Mm-hmm. What do we, even this question of what do we teach people? What do we feel comfortable that we could teach them? Right. And what do they need to be bringing to the table? And yeah. so we would even talk about what are we buying versus growing in mm-hmm. a candidate, right? Yeah. So what are they already coming with versus what can we teach them? And that looks really, really different. And so my early days, um, I spent a lot of time in supply chain. So that is a massive, massive scale. It's tens of thousands of people. Right. And they're all doing very, very similar jobs. And they're doing jobs that we feel pretty comfortable saying, yeah, we could. And even at the time, we would say to people, you don't need to have a background in this technical industry we can teach you that part. We just need people who are going to operate and make decisions the way that we want you to make decisions, right? And to have the, we called it culture fit, which is a whole other thing to come back to. But um, at the time, that's that's what we were looking for. And Mm -hmm. that is a really, really different challenge than uh, what you're describing with the advertising agency, right? Or any other kind of um, organization that's like that, smaller scale, potentially, mm-hmm. um, where we're figuring it out. Oh, maybe we've never had a social team before. And what does right. that look like, right? Yeah. And, or the client has asked for something that we've never had to do before. Mm-hmm. So how do we arrange you know, our team and get to get the work done that's, right. that needs to get done? So they're very, very different skills and challenges. Yeah. Um, and again, over the course of my career, I think that's part of what's been so interesting is to be able to see the challenges of both. What do you think makes a good HR professional? Oh, that's a great question. Honestly, I th- so a couple things come to mind immediately. I think first is the the is courage. Mm-hmm. I think more than anything, um, being really successful in human resources, as I define it, is courage. And the reason I say that is because you you really have to be adaptable. I think those two things go really hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Um, The ability to be able to say, I don't know. Um, You know, I, when I was put in the role of the head of HR for Target.com at one point in time, um, we had a team who was rapidly expanding. This is a number of years ago, rapidly expanding at the time. And we had multiple reorganizations. And our head of marketing came to me and said, hey, I need to reorg my team and I need your help with it. I have no idea. I was literally like a week into the role. I have no idea what your team does. Absolutely, I'm here to help, right? Um, And so it's that like rapid learning, that adaptability, but also being able to say, I don't know this as well as you do. I will never be the subject matter expert that the teams I support are. Right. Um, And yet, at the end of the day, I certainly have 
of value to bring when it comes to helping with organizational structure and design and again that adaptability knowing having some of that experience to say well this is what we've done in other cases and here's where it's similar here's where it might be different mm -hmm. here's where this particular solution may need to be different so I think courage and adaptability yeah I think humility is again very closely tied with those two things and I think that's that's really important too yeah um, at the end of the day I I think that's the best way to build credibility with people. Definitely. Is to be willing to um, say what you don't know. Be willing to say when you've made a mistake, too. Yeah. Um, and again, when it comes back to that courage, it's being willing to tell people straight, you know, hey, this may not be what you want to hear, but this mm -hmm. is the truth. Um, whether it's feedback, whether it's um, a decision that the company is making, whether it's, you know, helping people work through. Um, challenges, like what we call employee relations in the HR field, right? It's essentially yeah. helping people through conflict. Um, it's all of those Which things. Which must be really tough, too, the helping people through conflict. And that, that sort of makes me uh, also, this was going to be my next question, was just the component of culture is sort of a new idea mm -hmm. in the last, I would say, since sort of the... Uh, influx of startups and like the tech community and how culture and I put that in quotes for listeners who can't see me <laughs> um, is so important because I think we've both seen people use culture as a reason to not um, hire people that would bring that would be different and bring the as sort of a way around diversity and inclusion is to say hey you're not a good culture fit yeah. and so that must have been an interesting component to fold in, but then also find like the the right sizing of when when is someone a culture fit, and also when does our culture need to change? Because they're fair enough. It is fair to say that like okay, some somebody comes into an organization who's super loud and obnoxious, right? Cracking jokes all day. You're like, yeah, the culture fit is that you're just <laughs> the lack of culture fit here is that you're like distracting and not right. working. Right. Right. So, like. Yeah, so so it's interesting. I think company culture certainly has been a focus for companies for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and they certainly, again, the companies I've worked for, for years and years and years, have said company culture is super important to us. Right. I think what has shifted is our understanding of how we define culture, yeah. what we prioritize within culture. Mm -hmm. And I think there has been, um, well, what I hope is maybe a, a reawakening um, especially in the past couple of years, the conversation is far more mainstream, I will say, yeah. um, than I've seen in the past, which I think is a really good thing, around the unintended consequences of you know, what we used to think of as conventional wisdom. So right. we used to say, yes, culture fit. We're hiring for culture fit. And that was something um, that was held up as a great um, company best practice. I hate, I'm using air quotes too. I hate <laughs> that term. Agreed. But again, at the time, that was considered what you do. And that's what really good companies did. You create these best practices and it's you'd say, hey, we can teach you the technical parts of the job. We're just looking for a good culture fit. Mm -hmm. And that was all, again, as these things typically are, very well intentioned. But now what we understand is when you're continuing to look for culture fit, people who fit a mold, that eventually if you carry that too far down 
the road, eventually what you see are teams that look very, very similar because yeah. we as humans are wired to be attracted to people who are very similar to us. Mm-hmm. And when we're doing that, with if we're not being critical enough in our assessment um, and deliberate enough in our mm-hmm. assessment process, you end up having teams that look very, very similar. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, nobody wants to work with the guy who, you know, yells at people and things like that, right? Right. Um, or even worse than that. I mean, that's that's fairly straightforward. Right. Um, you know, it's like we could all agree. And that you have an action to point to, right? Correct. Like I, I remember Correct. one of the things that you taught me was when you're complaining about something, have like a specific, this is what happened. Yeah versus, oh, I feel whatever way about it. You're that, a jerk. Like, yeah. Exactly. That, like, here are the actions that were taken that were not okay. Um, and so go, go ahead yeah. with what you're saying, but that... Yeah, like, so that's, that's a little different. Let's take then a better, maybe a better example, which is somebody who just works very differently, right? They may have great ideas, but it's somebody who operates really differently. Right. Um, somebody who's coming with a very different cultural background, mm-hmm. um, right, who looks at things very differently. So the question is for culture fit, you know, does that person fit the culture? Maybe, maybe not. Right. Um, and so now I think what I advocate for is a much more discerning kind of assessment process when we mm-hmm. are saying, you know, what truly is culture fit? Again, coming back to what are the behavioral right, right. Uh, requirements that we have? Yeah. What, are we, what are we expecting of each other? Mm-hmm. What is the end goal that we're trying to get to? Yeah. And let's be less concerned about exactly how we have to get there yeah. and much more concerned with let's make sure we're bringing as diverse a perspective as possible because we know it means we'll make better decisions, we'll have a much better outcome, we'll have a more creative product or yeah. you know whatever that goal a, that a we're A better offering mm-hmm. in general. And it, that is something I've come up against because because I did not have ever like a really a corporate background. Mm-hmm. And so my first being thrown into a corporate environment was really, and it took me years to figure out what it was that I was doing and not doing that was yeah. upsetting people because a lot of people assume, well, she should just know this. But if you're used to operating at a small company or you're used to a certain work environment, like I, my, most of my working background was in the entertainment industry. Yeah which is not very, different very, very different. Yeah. And so when somebody says, hey, do this, I didn't know I needed to respond to people and go like, great, you can expect this by X, Y, Z time. Yeah. Yeah. I just figured, yeah, everyone knows I'm doing it. What's the confusion? Yeah. So like that was one of those things that took me years to realize until somebody was finally honest with me of because I would just hear like, hey, you need to communicate more. But I was like, how much, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, what is the more communication yep. that you need? I'm sending emails. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. I'm like, I'm, you think you're doing the right thing. Right, and then when I saw other mm-hmm. people, and it was like, then finally somebody spelled it out for me, like, that means that when you get this, you when say, you do this. great, I can do yeah. it by this time, Yeah, and whatever, and, and those sort of things of both those people, like the people that I worked with who were kind enough to give me that feedback and were not afraid to do that because I think there is a lot of fear around giving feedback in general yeah. because we were talking earlier earlier about the value of humility. Not everybody yeah. has that value. Right. And that's a hard thing to keep on all the time is constantly reminding yourself, oh, just be open to when people, right. when I might be wrong and be open to when people think I'm wrong and maybe I'm not and that's okay. 
Well, it's one of those things that sounds great. Everybody will say, oh, yes, I'm super open to feedback. Please share it anytime right. until you're actually sitting in the moment and you're having somebody Certainly. attack things that maybe you've worked really hard. Or what I see frequently is, oh, that wasn't my intent. Right. Right. You know, yeah. somebody says to you, hey, you need to communicate better. And you're like, I am. I'm doing all the right. right. I think I am. Um, and, and I see this play out all the time. Mm -hmm. And so what I have learned, um, and I continue to see this again, this is just humans working with each other. It's just super messy. Mm -hmm. But where we have, I think what becomes really dangerous, and again, this is very, very common. It's human nature in a lot of ways. Yeah. But we see somebody operate in a particular way and it maybe doesn't match up with our expectations, we mm -hmm. almost immediately come to a conclusion about what that means about that person. Yes. What uh, We come to some kind of assessment, oh, well, they're this, or that we think we know why they might, might be operating that way. Right. And more often than not, we're actually totally off. Yeah. But we humans think that we're great assessors of talent, that we're great at making these conclusions, mm -hmm. that we think we've got it all figured out. Right. And we're actually really bad at it. Right. We're really bad at yeah. it, which is why um, you referenced this earlier, but it's why I always go back to this. When you're giving feedback, there are two really, really important components to that, which mm -hmm. is first, the very, very specific. This is objectively what you did. It's the things I can observe, right? Yeah. It's the, you sat this way in a meeting or somebody asked you a question and you didn't answer, right. Or, right? Those things that are totally observable and for the most part indisputable, right? It's yeah. the thing I can observe. But the, so that's the first part that's super important. But the second part is this is the conclusion I came to because you did that, mm. right? Or this mm -hmm. was this was the assumption made because you did that. Yeah. That then is the part where we can go, oh, super important for me to know, right? Right? That's not at all what my intent was. Now yeah. we can have a conversation about that. But separating those two things out makes it less personal, right? It takes that, oh, you know, I, I've come to the conclusion that you're lazy because you don't send out this email or that you don't right? care yeah. that I, you know, need this deadline or need this thing by this time. Mm -hmm. um, it's taking that out entirely. It's taking all of that assessment out. But if I can say, hey, I have this expectation that... Right when you're given work that you'll communicate back when it will be done and how you're going to do that. And right. when you don't do that, I'm left wondering. Yeah. Now we can talk about that, right? Definitely. Um, so that's what I think is so, so important. But I see this. And honestly, this plays out very quickly, like on a really macro level mm -hmm. too. Um, and it is the source of so much conflict between people it is the source. Honestly, it can be career killers, right? Yeah. It can be the, if somebody's not getting feedback or, um, you know, something's not being addressed, that can absolutely affect then important decision makers mm -hmm. and their assessment about that person. And maybe now that person's not going to get a promotion or right, right on and on and on and on. Yeah. Like we see very real consequences to what at the end of the day is a pretty simple concept. Totally. It's maybe not easy, but it's, actually not that complicated. Yeah. So to shift gears a little bit, mm -hmm. um, due to the, I don't know, you'd mentioned, you'd use a phrase earlier that sort of like lent itself to this where I think we were talking about just, well, workplace things, right? Mm -hmm. In general. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, as the HR person, you have seen a wide variety of HR no-nos. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, probably spanning varieties. Oh, of, yes. Right, from misbehavior to uh, people not getting promotions or whatever who should sure. be in fair pay and equity. Everything. And then uh, sexual harassment, all kinds of things. Yep. Um, which sort of bubbled up and led you to start HR Uprise. Mm -hmm. Can you... Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what HR Uprise is and how it started, I guess? How it started, yeah. yeah. So in the wake of Me Too going viral in the mm -hmm. way that it did a few years ago, um, I'm looking around, kind of having a lot of conversations, like so many people I know mm -hmm. were doing at the same time. And I also was looking back on my own experience, both as an individual, because mm -hmm. I certainly have experienced the other side of it as well. Right. Um, but also as an HR professional and really thinking, my God, we really need to rethink everything that we've done. And looking at my own, so the biggest realization I had was I thought back over my career and I thought, you know, on the whole, I've been pretty fortunate. I really have. Mm -hmm. I have probably sat in hundreds of investigations over the course of my career. And I certainly have sat across the table from people who have experienced so much worse than I have. Mm -hmm. And I thought, as an, as, as an individual employee, I've been pretty fortunate. And it wasn't until it was a little while later mm -hmm. that I thought, wait a second. Like, I left a job pregnant without anything else lined up because I was in such a toxic work environment. Mm -hmm. I was experiencing things that were absolutely, no question, illegal. Um, never mind like all this other stuff that was just absolutely a brutal environment. And mm -hmm. I left it without anything else lined up because all I could do, like I finally realized this is my only choice here is whether to continue to remain a part of this or not. Mm -hmm. And it was the fact that that whole experience that I had actually just come through maybe less than a year before, mm -hmm. that it wasn't even top of mind for me in the beginning. Right. That was a huge realization for me. Yeah. Oh, I just got chills. It was a huge turning point for me. And now, of course, I have a lot better language as I've been diving so deep into this since then. Right. I have a lot better language um, to understand and kind of unpack that whole experience for myself. Yeah. But... I just kept looking around and I was watching then, you know, Time's Up performing in the entertainment industry and, you know, seeing um, kind of the worst of the bad actors right. finally being held accountable, like Harvey Weinstein. And, yeah. Um, but I kept, just kept saying, like, where's this in business? Like, yeah, where do because, we see this with yeah. business leaders, right? Standing up saying, like, no more. We have to do things really differently. And long story short, Finally, again, I'm looking back on my own experience as an HR professional saying, like, we got to get our shit together. Right. Like, we've, we've been complicit. And I think it's really important for us to have this kind of moment of reckoning to say yeah. we've been complicit, whether we intended to or not, or whether we were fully, whether we had full agency in mm -hmm. the decisions or not. Right. We've been a part of it. And... Um, so I was watching some other organizations at the time who were using Instagram in kind of an interesting way, being a social media Luddite myself. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought it was really interesting. And so we launched this Instagram account. Mm -hmm. And the response was immediate and it was overwhelming. 
Um, that part really surprised me. But now, so we've kept it going ever since, and it's sort mm-hmm. of continued to grow and evolve since then. But the one thing that I keep coming back to is even though I was speaking directly to HR, especially in the beginning, mm-hmm. the overwhelming response of direct messages, emails, even after I would give a talk right. and tell my own story, the number of people lined up afterwards to talk to me and say, I experienced the same thing. Mm-hmm. I can't talk about it because I'm under an NDA or I just never, you know, for a hundred million reasons, I've never told my story. Yeah. What kept coming back is all the people who are not HR, yeah. who the message was really resonating with. And I just kept thinking over and over, this is, there's something really fundamentally challenging about the HR role itself. Yeah. I would hear people say, and they still say it, um, HR is not your friend. Mm-hmm. And if you're harassed, don't go to HR. I right. would hear that frequently. And in the beginning... I fought against it so hard because I fought my entire career to create, at the very least, a more honest relationship, right. you know, and to, to build more credibility with my teams than that. Yeah. And yet, what I finally came to is structurally, if there is, like the goal was always to find where these two things intersect, right? It's mm-hmm. where something is like the answer or the solution is what's best for the employee and what's best for the company, mm-hmm. the goal is always to find where those two things came together, right? right? And yet, at the end of the day, if those two things were in conflict, or we couldn't find that, or the cost was too great to the organization, HR's primary obligation is to the company. right? And I finally realized like, I have to stop fighting against that because it is a reality. Yeah. And I think back over the hundreds of conversations I've had with people about things both big and small, mm-hmm where I thought to myself, oh, what I really want to tell you is this. Right. I just really wish I could tell you this part. And what is what is the this that you feel like is the common thread? Because there has to be, especially when I think about, I don't know, just a variety of circumstances you see. What's that? What's the this that you wish you could communicate with people? It was something maybe a little bit different every time. Mm-hmm. Um but at the end of the day, I guess the, the consistent theme was I'm obligated to protect the organization right. in this conversation, which is preventing me from being fully transparent, yeah. even though it's something I work really hard to build. Yeah. When you get right into it, there are always times where it's not appropriate for everybody to hear. It's I have to protect. Sometimes it's I have to protect confidentiality for somebody else, which is totally appropriate. Sometimes it's, um, well, the company is making this decision, which affects this person. And again, that's considered confidential. So therefore, I can't tell you this thing. I mean, it's it's something a little bit different every time. But the, the this, if there is a consistent theme, it was my primary obligation is to protect the organization that I'm working for. God, that's so hard. It is. And so so what's so interesting, though, is then then I think back to the conversations that I have. I call it like the HR phone-a-friend, mm-hmm. right, where it was friends or family, or then once I launched HR Uprise, it's direct messages and emails mm-hmm. that I get, where all of a sudden that requirement, that obligation is removed. 
I have no obligation to the company they're working for, right, Right. or any party. And then I finally could give them the, well, here are the things that you should know. You know, here's how to protect yourself. Here's how, and again, it's not that it has to be adversarial, but the reality is that that there are times where you do need to be cautious Mm -hmm. or there are ways that you can, again, just be smart in Mm -hmm. whether it's documenting what you're doing or, right? right? I mean, there's just a whole host of things. And so that's essentially now what's led me to kind of where we are today with HR Uprise, which is how can we level the playing field again? You know, Mm -hmm. how can we remove that obligation that HR has to the organization and give that same level of insight um, that HR phone a friend, right, right, back to the employee. And that also makes me wonder how can we, because that obligation to the company also means that's an obligation to the CEO, the founders of the company, whoever, if it's a larger organization, the board, whatever. Sometimes it is, yeah. How can how can we shift the perspective of those people to then go like, oh, this individual who has gone through whatever frustrations or things that like discrimination or whatever, how can they have their perspective perspective shifted so that they're not in the place where they're like, well, we just need to protect the company and going instead like, okay, well, we need to protect this person because ultimately we're also responsible for what what they went through Um, because that is something that should be more valuable and that people should take a step back from their bottom line and their own press and like crisis management yeah and look at it and go oh actually yeah we clearly made a a wrong judgment call because Mm -hmm. ultimately you are if you're the owner of a company you are responsible for you what are. happens. You are. And as much as, as much as I loathe like the Koch brothers, I heard this thing recently that I guess one of them, I don't even, basically one of them at the start of the organization, if somebody w- died in, in a factory or was injured, he would fly out to wherever that factory was and ask the manager of the factory, like, what could you have done differently? Hmm. And like address that That's person, good. which... I loathe everything about those brothers, (laughs) but I thought that is valid and also to me means that probably he was looking himself in the mirror like, what could I have done differently to stop this person from getting injured? And for people to take an approach where they're looking in the mirror and going, okay, well, how could we have hired differently or what did we do to to whatever? Because also it's not like we have... We don't have uh, sexual predator detectors that you can know that somebody's a creep. Right. But what you do have is you have, how can I make sure that people feel comfortable reporting this to HR? How can I make sure that people know that this isn't the type of environment where you can ever say or do something like that? Yeah. Presumably, in the 20 years of HR experience that you have, you may have encountered a few um, issues of sexual harassment in the workplace. Oh, for sure. Over the course of that, those experiences, um, what have you found to be the most, I don't know, I guess the best way of handling it? So a couple things um, come to mind. I, this is one of the things when I, in that moment, kind of in the very earliest days of HR Uprise, this is one of the, the biggest things that I reflected back on in mm-hmm. my own experience with how we've handled investigations. And again, I feel really fortunate the companies that I have worked for, by and large, um, have been great places to learn Mm -hmm. and great places to um, kind of learn the ropes and figure out how how best, 
quote unquote, to hand, handle an investigation. So I've seen really good examples of that. Um, and when I thought back over it, I thought, you know, by and large, um, most of the investigations that I've been a part of, I, I can't name one time where it was ever super clear, where I felt really clearly, oh, this most definitely occurred. And it was, I was directed to sweep it under the rug. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't ever remember that happening in my entire career. Mm-hmm. I know lots of people who do feel that way. Yeah. Um, but that was one of the things where I thought I've been pretty fortunate. Um, so by and large... When you get to a decision point, Mm -hmm. um, remember that intersection of what's best for the company and what's best for the employees? A lot of times it is remove this person, get this person out of the organization. They don't deserve to work here if they don't create safe workplaces for our employees. Yeah. Um, So that's absolutely true. Um, I think, again, in the wake of um, all of these discussions, um, you know, I had a situation where someone came forward um, and long story short, it became very clear that very distinct harassment had occurred and it had been going on for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And, and also, um, this is something that I see really frequently, by the way. Um, it's one of the most disheartening um, and tragic things for me to sit across the table from someone and they're describing what they have been enduring, they're describing the behavior um, and all of the things that have been going on. And it frequently is, it's been going on for a long time. Because Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, um, for a whole host of reasons, going to HR is their last resort, Yeah. right? Um, And so what that means is that usually by the time it's come to me, it's been going on for a while. And I, I hate that part. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I have learned over the course of my career, and one of the things I now advocate for, um, is still considered to be pretty radical, um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of circles, which is if you finally get to the point where you are firing someone, which means some pretty egregious behavior has, has gone on, Mm -hmm. um, that you're firing somebody, we have to stop lying to our employees. And what I mean by that is if anybody has ever sent the so-and-so has resigned, to spend time with his family or so-and-so is resigned to pursue other opportunities that are vague and unnamed. Yeah. And the reality is that we're actually firing them for harassment. We're lying to people. And so what I tell audiences now, um, or what I tell anybody who will listen is we have to stop doing that at minimum. If we want people to be able to trust us, to be able to handle it appropriately again, at minimum, we have to stop lying. Right. We have to stop covering up for people. And again, that kind of practice is super common because of the fear. Because of the fear of we don't want to be sued by, especially mm-hmm. by the person that we have fired. Mm-hmm. We don't want to go into the details. We're concerned, right? Again, it's a protective right. measure. Yeah. But we have to stop protecting the wrong people. Yeah. So here's another example. Um that a lot of people are not really aware of. So sexual harassment training, right? So everybody has probably sat through at least some version of the bad 80s video, right? Of the like um, scenarios and um, it's really cartoonish and horrible and everybody hates sitting through that version. So, but that version of harassment training exists for a very specific reason. We have a couple of Supreme Court cases we can thank for it, but essentially the decisions in those two Supreme Court cases set up this 
reality, this legality, mm-hmm. that if companies can demonstrate very clearly that we have done our training, that we have set very clear guidelines for what's acceptable and what's not, that we have essentially done our part as a company, that you cannot be held liable if somebody chooses one of your employees, one of your managers, for mm-hmm. example, chooses to act outside of that. And so now what we have then is the bad 80s video version of the harassment training, right? Which is the, this is the legal definition of harassment. It's the quid pro quo and hostile work environment. Yeah. The problem is the legal definition for harassment, never mind that like everybody hates it and it's totally ridiculous. Um, there are a couple of problems with our current environment. Number one, the legal definition of harassment is a super high bar to meet. It's really, really challenging to be able to prove the legal definition of harassment. But then there's all this other behavior that happens right in between on a daily basis that may come nowhere near a legal definition of harassment, and right. yet it's totally unacceptable. Yeah. I call it like this shit's still not okay. Yeah. So most harassment training leaves all that other stuff out. Right. Um, and it's only focused on the legal definition because, again, that's what is now required. Yeah. The other problem is that when you think about why would companies do this, right? Like, mm-hmm. why would companies implement this training? It is because they are concerned with their legal liability, right? Mm-hmm. But, but from whom? They're putting it in place to protect themselves from the victim mm-hmm. of harassment. Right. Not necessarily, oh, we didn't do the right thing, right? We didn't protect that person. Yeah. What they're actually, and again, it's not even this level of consciousness for Mm -hmm. most organizations. It's just, oh, we have to do this training, so there we're going to do it. But if you really think about it, if you really unpack it, that is what this current, what most companies do today. Mm -hmm. It is set up to protect the company from the victim, Mm -hmm. which is totally a back-ass word way of thinking about things. Well, and we see it, too, with, I mean, I think of friends who've experienced, uh, like, microaggressions at work Mm -hmm. in terms of race and the things that my friends have been told about their hair or their nails or whatever it may be. I mean, I have a friend who he, it was cold out, like Seattle, it's cold a lot. He's the only black person at his work. He showed up and his hood was over his head because it's cold out. And the owner of the company said, oh, are you here to rob us? Right. Right? And you're like, well, I'm at a small 70-person company. I can't say anything. Yeah. And and then it also then becomes a situation where to sue, it's like, well, what was said? What level of harassment is that? Yeah. And, and even in the protection against, like, people are so concerned about protecting the organization from the people who've suffered being made wildly uncomfortable in their workplace where now they feel like they can't even be warm when they show up to work. Yep. Or for a lot of women, it's we feel like we can't wear clothes that we like when we show up to work or right. look too attractive to whatever because it's right. inviting things. Um, and that there isn't a lot of uh, feelings that someone will look out for you because people are concerned about what liability the company mm-hmm. has in that. So in those situations, like, I love also what you said about pointing out that, like, this is why this person was let go is because of X, Y, Z behavior. 
also because as somebody like I've been very, I've certainly had situations where I felt like people weren't acting appropriately. And as someone who's gone through that if I were to be in, a, in an organization where I received that type of email that said, so-and-so was fired because of this behavior yeah. versus they resigned or whatever that is, yeah. um, it would make me go, okay, I'm at least in a safer place. Like yeah. I know one of the best emails I ever got was during, um, during like the whole Muslim ban. Mm. When I got an email from the CEO of the company I was at that said just so, because all that happened and sort of unfolded over a weekend. And I remember Monday morning, there was an email from the CEO going, this is like, you are in a safe work environment. Like yeah. this is not behavior like from the administration that we find acceptable. And I want you to know that like, by no means is anyone here. And I was like, oh, like I, what a relief. I don't have to wonder where this yeah. company stands on where these do we things. Stand? Yeah. And so that is, and so why do, do you feel like most organizations find that radical and most people find that radical because you're ousting somebody and because it's like, is that what yeah. you come up against? It's certainly bucking convention. Mm -hmm. It's certainly considered the less legally safe mm -hmm. way to do things. Right. But again, if you're, if you're only operating within the confines of what's considered safe legally, right. You're not ever going to venture out the door. Yeah. Um, and again, this is this is no shade to attorneys out there. They right. do they do an excellent job, but again, their job is to protect the company, yeah. protect an individual, what have you. Um, so yeah, I think it is considered radical. Um, so the other part, the follow up to, we have to stop. I mean, at minimum, we have to stop lying to people in mm -hmm. that email. Is also then what I advocate for is what we did in this case, which is have an open forum. Open up the dialogue. Yeah. And yes, it takes a tremendous, in some ways, it takes a tremendous amount of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, I'm convinced it's the only way through. Yeah. But, but to have an open forum. And so what we did in this particular case, we sent out that email um, on a Monday or Tuesday saying so-and-so's been terminated. Come join us on Friday for, you know, this meeting. Mm -hmm. And then we throughout the whole week leading up to it, we're collecting questions. What are people asking, whether it's in the hallway, whether it's through this anonymous forum, this Google forum we set up, mm -hmm. right? Like we're collecting all these questions. Like what are people actually wanting to know? Right. Um, what are they afraid to talk about, right? And yeah. so it would be like men in the hallway who would stop me and say like, can I just ask like, is it possible for me to harass somebody without knowing it? Right? And like, that's a vulnerable question. That's something yeah. that people aren't, usually um, comfortable asking in an open forum, but like yeah. we'd add that to the list and make sure we cover that there. Right. One of the big questions that we got from people that, again, I wasn't even on my radar, but it makes perfect sense, was like, what's an investigation process? Like what does that, what's even involved? What right. happens? Yeah. I'm like, oh, of course that's a question. I mean, I've done it like hundreds of times, yeah. but like, of course that's a question for people. So we went through the entire thing, right? And said like, here's how it works. Yeah. And here's what happens if we have one person's word against another. Right. And again, that's considered radical because we don't usually talk about what happens behind the curtain, right? Right. Um, but that is the part that I think we have to start to like really break apart. Um, well, so that people can feel safe. Because absolutely. if you don't know that anyone... Like, one of the big reasons that I have regularly not voiced when I've been sexually harassed is that 
it is more painful the idea of someone saying, oh, that's not that big of a deal. Yes. And a lot of people meet that with the wrong type of behavior. I also, especially in social mountain work environments, yeah. like, yeah, I don't want to tell someone and then, like, there's some fight where we're at, right? Like, I don't yeah. want to tell someone and then have there be some dramatic confrontation. Yeah. I just want it to stop. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah. And so when those are your options, like, when you've mm-hmm. never seen anything in the in-between, yeah. Um, and you've only ever seen somebody overreact and act as if, like, they're your, like, protector and keeper, yeah. or you've seen someone go like, oh, no, you're misinterpreting it. That guy put his hand on your knee to show you that he cares not because yeah. he's creepy. Um, you don't know that there's an in-between of like, oh, actually, there's a way to have a conversation and have one person understand that they did something wrong and have the other person understand that they're protected and it's unacceptable. Yeah. And you can move on from that. I have found that there are, for most people, mm-hmm having to go to HR, having to like get any kind of official response involved, like is an absolute last resort for most people. Yeah. Most people, they will say, I just want it to stop. Right. I just want to be able to come in and do my job right. and not have to worry. Right. I just want it to we're stop. All, we're already at work. We're not already not excited to be there. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, like for most people, like you're already show <laughs> like I already dragged myself out right. of bed right. Right. and right. showed up here where I probably don't feel like I'm being paid enough. Yeah. And now I right. have to deal with this nonsense yeah. on top of it. Most people. So there are a hundred million reasons that keep people from coming forward. Right. right? I talk about power dynamics a right. lot. That's a huge, huge component of this. Like, this is the other thing. Um, harassment has, sexual harassment, has very little to do with sex. Right. It really does. It, it is all about power. Yeah. It is about asserting power, about maintaining power. Like, that is really, at the end of the day, that is really what it's about. Mm-hmm. So, again, but there are so many reasons that people don't come forward. It, it's right. the... Oh, it's explained away. Oh, but he's never done that with me. I've never seen that. Right. Or it's the, you know, I mean, it's like a million and a half reasons. Like all of the conversation that's happening around Elizabeth Warren right now Mm -hmm. and this supposed smoking gun that, so essentially what happens, she's told the story many, many times about uh, back in the early 70s, she was a teacher. She became pregnant and then was told by her principal that he he had hired her backfill. She wasn't invited back. So she left and she's told the story a few different times that that was kind of the beginning for her. She decided to go to law school and on and on. Right. Um, but it was very clear pregnancy discrimination, which by the way, was not even illegal right. in the early 70s. Yeah. Um, and so now there's a, I will not even call them a media outlet, but somebody went and found the um, meeting notes from this particular school board meeting that says, right. oh, she was an extended an offer, but she left, blah, blah, blah. Like it's some smoking gun. Right. That pregnancy discrimination didn't actually happen. Yeah. Any woman who has ever conceived a child or had a friend who conceived a child looks at that and says, of course that's what happened. Right. And also, of course the meeting notes, by the way, don't say fired because pregnant. Right. It doesn't happen. Yes. Just a few years ago, I spoke up about what was happening for the company I was working for, a very distinct double standard that existed for women. Mm-hmm. I went through the whole thing. I was the head of HR for this organization. Mm-hmm. It was my job to do that, right? To mm-hmm. speak to the leadership within this organization about all the decisions we were making, about the marketing we were doing. It was really deep and really complex. And I gave them all the examples. 
I became then, not only did all of my concerns go completely ignored, Mm -hmm. it was completely ignored, um, but I then became the internal target. And all of a sudden, again, it was this toxic work environment that I referenced earlier. And, but the kicker for me was eight days after I told the CEO I was pregnant with our second child, he told me I was going to be laid off. Wow. So I quit. And now I look back at that situation, right? And I think, of course I knew it was totally illegal. Right. But I also knew that it would be explained away in a million other ways. Yeah. Right? It would be, oh, no, it was this. It was actually that. That it would never officially be reflected as laid off because pregnant. Right. Nobody's that stupid. Right. But looking at all of that, right, I still probably could have had a very, very strong legal case, whether it's private or filing with the EEOC. I could have, it would have been probably very, very strong. And yeah. yet I decided not to do any of that. I decided to resign instead. Mm-hmm. Number one, because I was concerned that whatever layoff was being orchestrated, that I was going to be asked to be a part of it. And mm-hmm. I couldn't live with that. Yeah. Like, I've worked too hard for my professional reputation yeah. to be a part of this, whatever this is. Yeah. Um, but also, I decided to stay quiet at that time because I knew that the story was going to become about me. Mm. I could have gone to the press. Honestly, it probably would have been the thing that would have caught the most attention yeah. just because of the players involved and where I was at the time. Yeah. And I decided not to because I knew I was going to become the story. Well, that, and I mean, just think about too, like it should not, a a friend said this to me recently and this wording never occurred to me where he was like, it, it shouldn't be my job to point out what other people are already doing wrong. Like it shouldn't be that responsibility shouldn't rest with me. And I've heard a lot of people go like, well, you should sue and da, da, da. And that is assuming that you're in a financial place to sue and in a mental place to sue if you're pregnant, you don't want that sort of stress then affecting your pregnancy because a lawsuit is, it's already stressful enough to be in a toxic work environment and that impacts your mental health so much that mustering up the mental and emotional energy to then also file a lawsuit and then hope that you win because if you don't win, you've just put all this money into a lawsuit when you have a second kid on the way. And even if I felt and I did. I had a pretty strong case. Right. I had all the evidence, of course, as any good HR person would. Right. And yet, I didn't want it to be, I knew that eventually I'd be looking for another job. I didn't want it to be the first thing that showed up when you Googled my name. Right. Absolutely. And again, so it's, so I say all of that because it is just another illustration, right? And all of this conversation now, you know, because there's all these people coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, this is proof that Elizabeth Warren lied about that right. no it's not of course right. of course she explained it in a million different ways for years and years of course yeah. she did I did the same thing it took me a long time to even figure out now I can I mean even the story that I tell you right I can tell it in a fairly succinct fairly kind of direct a leads to b leads to c right it took me years it took me years to get to the point where I could even recognize it for what yeah. it is let alone be able to name it let alone be able to tell the story do you go to therapy yeah yeah, yeah. I have. And I spent a long, I spent a long time. I also have an amazing executive coach. Oh, cool. Um, but I spent a long time, like, so in the aftermath of all of that, um, really unpacking and, you know, having some time mm-hmm. <laughs> to, like, right. really figure out what all of that meant. Yeah. But it wasn't until, again, even much, much later, mm-hmm. part of it was getting to the place where I felt safe enough to be able to tell the story again. 
Yeah. Part of what I was so concerned about. So for example, here's another one of these HR practices that I've unpacked as a result of all of this, getting ready to interview with companies. After all of this happened, I thought to myself, how do I tell the story about why I left? Right. Yeah. I don't want to lie. I sort I like, that's not who I am, but also like that's, that's I don't want to start off on that foot with yeah. my, you know, new company that hopefully I feel really excited about going to. Right. And yet I decided I'm only going to tell enough of the story to satisfy them that. Right. Because, and why was I worried about that? I was worried about that because I knew that if I told the whole truth of why I left, yeah. That it would come back on me again. That yeah. I would it would be assumed, because this is what we do, it would be assumed that I was actually the problem. Totally. That I must have done something to create it, that companies don't do this these days. Right. Nobody's stupid enough to make a decision like that, especially with somebody who is in a role for HR, right? Like all of these things. Yeah. I knew. And they'd say, Well, why didn't you sue them? Why exactly. was it a lawsuit? Exactly. Yeah. So you're basically damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Moral of that story, right? God. No, but but it, but it is, right? It's uh-huh. this, this is another one of those examples where I look back and I'm like, these are all the things that we need to completely unravel, mm-hmm. like what we have considered to be conventional wisdom, yeah. even in our interviewing practices. Like right. when we ask people, why did you leave that job? Um, we need to be fully ready and accept quite frankly, at face value, mm-hmm. the story that someone tells us. And, and maybe s- don't ask that question. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. Why do we care, right? Yeah. Like why somebody leaves one job to go to the next or why somebody was at a job for such a short period of time. Right. Um, or, or, or. Yeah. There's so many examples. What do you think are good questions to ask during an interview? I mean, I think it, I think questions, the be- the the best interview questions that I have kind of formed over time Mm -hmm. are the questions that really get at someone's thought process. Like that's what I want to know. Right. Okay. So tell me about a time when you did this, right? And, and it's typically, I'm interested in people who quite frankly have had to overcome something who have worked through some kind of adversity. Totally. I'm interested in that. And I'm interested in what was your thought process? What did you keep working toward? Yeah. I'm also interested in what lights you up. I don't even care if it's related to the job we're talking about here. Like, what makes you come alive? Like, tell me. Right. Tell me about the thing that is just, like, the most exciting thing in the world to you. Totally. And tell me why. Yeah. Right? It's it's really much more around the thought process and the what what motivates you, what makes you tick, what do you want to do, why do you want to, you know, go on this endeavor, why do you want this job, what is it, how does this fit into the big picture for you, right, Right. into the arc of your career, whatever it is you yeah. have planned for yourself. Those are the questions I'm much more interested in. For people, yeah, um, and these questions around, um, again, you know, even these, what's considered to be conventional wisdom of, oh, somebody who you know moves too frequently, right. they're not going to be committed to what you're doing. Well, maybe they just haven't found the right thing yet, yeah. right? Totally. Maybe there's a whole million and a half reasons why. Maybe they're working in the advertising industry and they've been laid off four times because that's just how the industry is. Yeah. Right? Like, whatever it is. And so. also not, to me, the one thing that bothers me about that is not seeing how somebody with, like, a diverse background and experience can bring a better perspective to the table and uh, more holistic thinking to the table. That if yeah. you've worked across different verticals and different business models totally. or in different positions, that, like, you're going to have a much better version of reality than someone who's been, has a career in a silo. Totally. You're just going to have a totally different way of thinking. I'm so much more interested in people who have had to 
overcome some kind of adversity, whether it's in their career, in their personal life, whatever it is. Because I think about, I think back on the most um, important, right? Those moments, those um, situations I found myself in, the challenges that I faced, like they were all challenges that that have made me who I am now. And certainly those moments where that have created so much more empathy mm-hmm. for what people are dealing with, where, right. you know, where I'm dealing with a close family member who is terminally ill. And I look at how we work through all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about the boss I had at the time who went out of her way to be super supportive. Mm-hmm. Take all the time you need. I mean that literally. Don't even record your vacation time. Just go and be with your family. Do what you need. The work will be here when you're done. And she meant it. Yeah. And then provided the shield wherever it was necessary for me to be able to do that. Yeah. I think about that. I think about the boss I had when I had my first child mm-hmm. who I was on the road all the time. It was a brutal, brutal experience um, because my husband was in the early days of residency. And it was an incredibly, incredibly challenging time. And the boss I had at that point rearranged a bunch of meetings to be in my hometown. They were supposed to be all over the U.S. because that's what we'd been doing for years. He rearranged all of them to be in my hometown so that I wouldn't have to travel. At least for those trips, I could take that off of my plate. I mean, things like that. I never asked him. It never even occurred to me that that would be an option until he just came and said, it's done. This is what we're doing. That's awesome. So so I look at the moments that people have extended a tremendous amount of grace for me, but it was because I was in this moment of challenge, right, that mm-hmm. have certainly shaped who I am and how I operate with teams and certainly the, the teams that I'm a part of. Yeah. But I also think about the challenges and how I worked through all of those have absolutely made me who I am. That's what I'm interested in for yeah. people, whether and maybe or maybe not. Yeah. Right? It's directly related. Yeah. But somebody who can very distinctly say, they have that look of recognition and go, oh, yeah, I've got the story for you. Let me tell you. Right. Right. Those are the people who I know will also, if this is something that they're really passionate about, yeah. right? this job, um, this work that you're doing, if they're super passionate about it, they will find a way. Yeah. They'll make it work. Like exactly. That's, presumably people aren't just a lot of times applying for jobs that like, Right, that you're perfectly suited for, that your resume matches the job description exactly perfectly. And there's no, I mean, a lot of times I've had people, like I've applied for jobs before and it's like, no, I wouldn't be applying for this job if I'd already done it because I don't want, I want to go somewhere where I'm being challenged. So like if I already had done the same job for three years, no, I don't want that job. Yeah. That's why I'm not applying to that job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is interesting. And so... I want to shift and ask some questions sort of about, because you work, you've worked full-time for a mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. Your husband works full-time. Yeah. How do you make that work with two kids? <laughs> um, sometimes we do it really well, and sometimes we don't. So it's been interesting. So we were married for almost 10 years before we had our first child. Really? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And we had been together for 16 at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was a big part of it, as we spent a lot of our early careers, um, and that was intentional on our part. We waited a long time to have kids, partly because we were both so career-focused and mm-hmm. really wanted to explore and, you know, do a lot of things with both our careers. 
my husband was working towards medical school, mm -hmm. um, which was a long road, yeah. and both to get there and then also to get through. Um, I was kind of, at the time, I was working my way up the corporate ladder because I thought mm -hmm. that was my path. So um, now, since kids have come along, it certainly does have a way of refocusing um, and um, kind of channeling <laughs> your priorities right. in so many ways. Um, I think that what we've learned over time um, is there are points in time, especially when you're trying as a couple to juggle two big careers, mm -hmm. it was interesting because it was unusual for us. For us, in most of the time, most of our peers had one spouse who stayed at home, right? right, or focused on the family or that their career sort of took a back seat. So it was hard for us to find other friends where they were both kind of trying to juggle the same thing. Right. So it is a challenge. Yeah. Um, and even with that, though, there were definitely points in time where, you know, one career would take precedent or that we would prioritize one versus another. And that's part of what led us to lots of the moves that we made. Mm -hmm. So we did seven state-to-state -state moves together. Yeah. And does he have to... I don't really know how like medical field worked. Does he have to like retake a test every time he goes in a different state? Is it like law? Or so it... when we were bouncing around the country um, in the early days, mm -hmm. at that point in time, he was studying, um, finishing prerequisites to be able to apply to medical school. And then he was applying to medical school. It takes most people on average a couple years to get in. Um, so he was kind of doing all of that work for okay. the early moves that we made. And then mm -hmm. the last couple... We moved for medical school and then residency as well. And okay. then once he was done with residency, we came back here to Seattle. Okay. Um, so we're hopefully done with moving for quite some time. <laughs> but this was always kind of the long yeah. game. This was always the, the goal that we were working toward. Was coming back to Seattle. Was, was yeah, coming to a point where, um, you know, my husband was into his career, mm -hmm. um, starting to establish himself there where I was, you know, able to focus on, um, you know, my career too. And, yeah. you know, so along the way, I kind of discovered the corporate ladder wasn't really what I was interested in. Right. You know, pulled, pulled that curtain back and saw the wizard behind the curtain. Um, and so then, yeah, it's kind of been this series of steps ever since just trying mm -hmm. to figure out. Um, you know, what is the, the right role? I've had some opportunities to work in really, really interesting organizations doing mm -hmm. some really, really um, experimental things. Mm -hmm. um, and now, now, obviously, I'm devoting myself full-time to HR Uprise. So mm -hmm. it's another chapter for us, yeah. you know, that I'm, now that I'm an entrepreneur and um, really fully um, involved in that. Part of yeah. what is really great about that, is, about working for myself, um, is the flexibility that it gives. And it gives us um, a tremendous amount um, for our children, our two mm -hmm. girls, and their schedules. And, yeah. um, you know, they're still relatively young. Yeah. Um, which means they, but they're old enough now that they care if we're home, right. you know? Yeah. They, they care if we're not there. Um, so traveling is a little bit more challenging. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's just, I think... What we learned many, many years ago in the very earliest days for the two of us together is figuring out, having having all of our career decisions, we viewed all of them as joint decisions. Mm -hmm. um, that anything for my career 
was always something that we were going to decide together Mm -hmm. um, and vice versa. Same for his career. Um, And I think that's been really key um, in just figuring out how to make it work. And so when we decided, you know, he's in emergency medicine. Um, And so along with that comes rotating shifts and, you know, that's a challenge. Um, And so we talked about that when he decided to go into emergency medicine and have, Mm -hmm. we didn't even have kids at that point in time, but we knew that we planned to at some point and talked about what that would mean for us, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 years down the road when he's on rotating shifts. But the flip side is he's not taking call when he's not at the hospital. When he's done with his shift, he walks away and he's done. And so we'll get the schedule, you know, however many months at a time and we plan around that. And so we just... You know, we make these adjustments. And so kind of what we know at the time, you don't always have the full picture, right? Right. But what we know at the time, um, you know, being able to make decisions for all of us. And now even when it's a challenge, you know, we know that we've both signed up for, yeah. you know, whatever it is. And so then did you have like childcare help? Do you have, just because I think it's, mm-hmm. it's impo- I think it's important to share this stuff. And just so you know, I also ask men the same question. Yeah, I appreciate uh, that. Because I yeah. think that it's, I think men should also be talking about For how sure. they show up as husbands and fathers. And For I sure. really appreciate the openness. I had a guest on recently whose episode hasn't been released yet, but he is in his seventies and he was really honest and was just like, yeah, I just wasn't really there yeah. for my kids. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Well, I think that's all my question. <laughs> like, yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess that's where, but at least he was honest to not pretend like, oh, yeah, I've been heading up this company and traveling all the time and also I'm a great dad right. because you're not, and, you know, everyone has a different definition of what great dad means, but, sure, like, sure. let's not pretend like you were also there for everything. Right. Um, because, and I think that that's okay to not be there for everything because there's also kids... Yeah do need to learn also an element of independence while also feeling supported where, and I think especially with girls, it's important to show them that like you can have a career and that doesn't mean you don't love your family any less. Absolutely. And in fact, um, the two go hand in hand, you know, I think it's super important for, for my girls to see more than anything for, for them to see both of their parents Mm -hmm. really engaged in the work that they're doing. Yeah. And loving what they're doing. And yeah. it's taken, you know, a while to get to that, too. Mm-hmm. That all the years and years of hard work all happened before they came along, right? So, right. of course, they're kids and they're not going to fully appreciate that. But I think what they will see, what I hope they will see as they grow mm-hmm. is um, is that dedication. And, yeah, there are times. So what, what my girls do see is that I work from home. Um, right. And... There are times on the weekends where I'm doing work, um, yeah. and that's really important. Um, and so I think, yes, so to answer your original question, yeah, we for sure at different points in time um, have had um, nannies help, um, mm-hmm. whether it's after school, um, come and, you know, fix dinner for the kids so right. that, you know, I don't have to leave the office at 3.30 in the afternoon just to make it all work, right? I mean, yeah, yeah absolutely, we've done that. Um, we're at a point now where I have some flexibility, but it also mm-hmm. means that then I'm also still doing some work in the evenings. Right. Um, I think we certainly haven't gotten it all figured out. I don't know that anybody does. No. Um, but, you know, it's also just being super open and having that ongoing conversation with them too. Mm-hmm. 
And also then picking the times that are totally protected, you know, that are just our family, um, where I'm not answering the phone or, you know, what have you. It's, yeah, it's a challenge. Um, and I certainly have dealt with the, the guilt Mm -hmm. of feeling like you're not fully, you're not giving a hundred percent to anything you're doing. Right. Yeah. And the times where that has been the most challenging for me were times where I felt like I wasn't, again, it was back at that previous company where I was doing all I could and clearly it was never enough. What I understand now, of course, right? It's like nothing I did at that point was ever going to be enough. Yeah. Once the tables turned, you know, mm-hmm. and once the focus turned on me. Um, but at the time I was trying, I was trying all I could and um, you know, my husband's in his first year of residency, which is notoriously brutal. Mm-hmm. And he did everything he could. Um, but he also was, had to work, you know, 90 plus hours a week. Wow. And so I would leave the office, an office, by the way, which said we were a flexible work, you know, environment, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. We don't care when or where the house. When or how the work gets done, we just care that it gets done. Right. You can work from anywhere, remote, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I would leave at the last possible moment from the office to still make it home to pick my daughter up from daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the way out the door, I would have to hear the snide, like, oh, it must be nice to have banker's hours. Uh, you know, things like yeah. that. Or they would absolutely deride me for not making it to the, oh, you didn't make it to this happy hour for so-and-so. Like, yeah, it's in the evening unless you want to pay for childcare for me. Right. I'm not going. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'd leave at the last possible moment for the office, come screaming in at the last possible moment at daycare. And as a parent, you feel super awesome when your child is the last one <laughs> to be picked up, right? Yeah. Come screaming in feeling like, like a horrible parent. It was right. those moments where it was the absolute worst. Yeah. Um, where I felt like I'm just failing on all fronts mm-hmm. at this point. Like I think even in the best of circumstances, even if you're loving what you're doing and if you feel like you're in a positive environment, yeah. it can be super, super challenging. Definitely. I have no use for the whole conversation about can you have it all? Because I think that's just a bullshit conversation. I Agreed. reject the premise I outright. I would never ask someone that question. I reject the premise outright. Yeah, um, totally. Because it's just the wrong question altogether, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I do, again, I think we're all doing the best we can. Yeah. Um, How do you think your way. work has impacted the way that you're raising your kids? Man, it's given me a sense of urgency mm-hmm. in so many ways, especially with two girls. Yeah. I think about what kind of world are they going to be entering, especially in their work life? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it going to look like? And I think about, so Jody Cantor and Megan Tui were two of the journalists who won the Pulitzer for their work uh, breaking the Harvey Weinstein story. Mm-hmm. And they talked about how their own kids and especially their daughters were just their driving force behind the work that they did. Yeah. And when they accepted the Pulitzer, one of them said, um, you know, what we hope, you know, what will it look like for my daughter when she goes to work? Like when she looks back and we tell her about this work that we've done. Right. Will she be shocked that something like that could possibly go on? Or will she say like, oh yeah, it's still the same today. Right. 
And the fear of the latter Mm -hmm. is kind of what keeps me going. Um, These are huge systemic challenges that we're talking about, dismantling structures and power systems that have been in place for hundreds of years. And changing the way I think that, not to say that it, it won't change, but you can't undo the environment and the culture that people were raised in. It can't happen overnight. For Men sure. and women alike. Yep. Like across the board. Yep. So many of us have been raised to be complicit and so many of us have been raised yep. to think that certain behaviors uh, you can get away with and if you get away with it, it's okay. And people, I find that especially Americans have a tendency to... Um, decide where their moral compass lays based on what is legal and what is illegal mm-hmm. versus looking at legality and morality as like things that don't need to be like there's a lot of things that are immoral that are still legal yeah. and that doesn't yeah. mean that you're getting away with something right and it shouldn't mean that you're getting away with something just because there can't be a lawsuit against it right I think So yes, there are massive systemic years in the making issues that we're talking about dismantling. Mm -hmm. And yet also, so it's yes and. Right. I look at the way the conversation has changed in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. Me Too has been a huge part of this. Um, There's a collective consciousness that I think has emerged Mm -hmm. with so many world events, you know, happening at the same time. But their conversation is very different. And as much as I look back over the past couple of years and I think, God, we still have a really long way to go. At the same time, I'm also really encouraged by the fact that the conversation has changed so dramatically in a relatively short period of time as well. Right. And so that is the driving force. That's what keeps me going with this. Um, is the both and <laughs> definitely because we now I think um, you know about Moore's law about like technology right mm-hmm. and I think I've thought a lot over the years especially the last three or so years about how we're now seeing that in terms of um, like cultural issues mm-hmm. and the fact that we're given language can just develop at a much more rapid pace because we're all connected on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and whatever so we can come up with words and phrases like emotional labor mm-hmm. to be able to describe the things that previously you didn't really have the words to go, this is what I'm experiencing. And yeah. like um, even the word like microaggression, mm-hmm. the fact that that has been brought up to describe something where when a comment is made, I can now assign that with words and that it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's something that I know, something my neighbor actually told me that helped me go to therapy to develop more language for yeah. like my own life experience was when he pointed out that he realized in going to therapy that the only words he had to describe for his feelings were like mad, sad, and right. happy. Right, right. And I was like, well, yeah, what other words are there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I well, didn't have the words of feeling I, frustrated or any of yeah, those things. So yeah. when you can develop language and we're all able to progress and address these issues much quicker when we can align and speak the same language on and yeah. be able to define those things versus I, these nebulous issues. Language gives it legitimacy. Yeah. Right. If we don't even have terminology, right, or a way to describe what it is we're experiencing, it's so easy to dismiss. Yeah. And so, like I said, I look back on my experience and at the time I didn't have language for any of what I was experiencing. And now right. that I do, it's been a huge part of the process of healing from that and figuring mm-hmm. out like how do I 
how can I use this going forward? Yeah. But it does. It gives legitimacy and it inspires then, I think, confidence in, oh, yes, I, I'm not going to talk myself out of this. Yeah. Because there's actually a term for, right. for what I've been experiencing. Yeah. And I, I see that happening a lot these days, too. Yeah. And I think that's a huge, huge step forward for all of us. Agreed. So the last question I ask everybody okay. is what would you want to hear a future behind the scenes episode on? Ooh, that's a great question. And mm. it can be literally anything. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> Let's see. Um, we're getting a little bit of a taste of this right now, um, but I would love to see even more um, behind the scenes, maybe with a, a journalist, oh, an yeah. investigative journalist. I love that. Ronan Farrow's book is out. Jody yeah. Cantor and Megan Tuohy's book is out. They're all coming out right now, and you're getting this kind of behind-the-scenes look into what they've done. Right. So yeah, I would love, I would love maybe an any specific category of journalism, investigative journalism for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, as I'm obsessed, uh, especially with those three. Yeah. Um, I'm They're super great. obsessed. Definitely. Yeah. Happily. Awesome. Thank you for being yes. on, Rebecca. And where Thank can people you. find you and HR Uprise on the internet? So probably the best place still is on Instagram. Okay. At HR Uprise. Perfect. Um, era we're posting. But you do a good job on LinkedIn also. Don't, trying to don't short sell yourself. Trying to don't post a bit on LinkedIn. What I tell people is like it's a slightly less spicy Totally. Um, I use less profanity on LinkedIn. Fair. Version (laughs) of what um, shows up on Instagram. That is definitely community appropriate. Yes, exactly. A little bit more safe for work. Yeah. Version of things. But yeah, um, or on Twitter occasionally too, but not nearly as often as Instagram is probably still the original. And then our website is hruprise.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time.